Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fever Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. In this episode, I talked to Justin Trefgarn, the writer, director, and producer of the movie Narcopolis. A fellow countryman of mine, he had this theory. We could not change the course of history. The best we could hope for is to change the detail. In a dystopian future where all drugs are legal, police officer Frank Greaves uncovers a mystery that has an element of time travel to it. Trefgarn and I discussed over Skype his background, his process as a writer and a director, his genre influences, and where he got the idea for the movie. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you very much for calling. I was looking over your IMDb last night to kind of, you know, get some questions and all that, and you're still relatively new to the uh, scene of Hollywood and making movies. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are? Sure. Um, I started um, life as an actor, a very short stint as an actor, and, and got very quickly into directing theatre, really, predominantly. Um, I then um, made some short films, as you do, you know, and kind of mucked about doing bits and pieces. And then I was lucky enough to apprentice with a film director for a few years as an assistant, personal assistant to him. And then through that work, found myself into story editing and script development. So my, my, my true north was always directing, but I had no way into that other than, you know, I didn't go to film school. So for me, it was really about getting kind of grassroots experience and working my way up. And I was lucky enough to land the job at Working Title Films, uh, who have a big international presence. And they were making movies like Bridget Jones's Diary and Notting Hill, Four Weddings and a Funeral, that kind of stuff. And by the time I joined them, they were making movies like Atonement um, and the second Bridget Jones film. So I had a, a fantastic th three or four years with them. Really, I guess that was my film school. You know, I, I was working with Paul Greengrass, Joe Wright, um, Edgar Wright, all kinds of amazing people on their movies and, you know, story editing with them. And I guess that was my real... Um, insight you know, into the, sort of the, the reality of filmmaking rather than the dream. Um, and also the great thing about working for a big production company that's successful is that of course you get to see the films through to release and beyond. So it was fantastic to be able to take part in some of those movies and see them kind of out there being released and seeing how that impacted on the company and the kind of projects they were developing and really you know, looking at it also you know, personally from a creative point of view and seeing where my true kind of passions were and, and what kind of films I wanted to make. But, you know, you don't get to make a film by working behind a desk in a production company. So I left Working Title and went freelance and started writing screenplays for hire, you know, for, as, as a, you know, for other people. Um, and I, you know, had some success at that and, um, you know, got a number of commissions and branched out into branded content, doing some movies for Ridley Scott's company and... Um, some video games and that kind of stuff and, and all the while that was taking place was working on you know the plan to, to put my first feature film into into production well so I mean you consider yourself a director first before writing I kind of yeah I mean I don't really choose between them and as much as I get you know equal pleasure from both although you know directing is a, an all-consuming you know, pastime. Once when you're in on the front line in the trenches, as it were, shooting a movie, you know, there's it's completely all-consuming. And I think, you know, writing is is a little bit more benign uh, in some respects. So um, the two kind of balance themselves out. But yes, I guess you know, if, if someone asked me the other day if I had to choose between the two, which one would I choose? And I think probably I would choose directing, just because 
the, the camaraderie um, and, and the sense of belonging to a, a group of people, you know, that, that kind of creative collaboration is a feeling that it's very hard to replicate anywhere else in life. So, I mean, going into this project specifically, uh, did you know you were going to be directing it at the same time that you were writing or was it a package deal or was it like one came first and then the other kind of followed along? Yeah, no, I specifically wrote the script for me to direct. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to do something that played to 100% to my passions. I, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd looked at, you know, I'd made some short films. I'd had a couple of films, you know, do festivals and that kind of stuff. And all the while, I was still writing scripts for other people. But, you know, I realised that, you know, the only way I was really going to get a film made, you know, as a director at, th at that stage of my career was to kind of you know, was to take control of the, of the writing as well as the directing. And so I, I wrote the, the film specifically as a vehicle for, for me to direct. Okay. Are you able to separate your writer self from your director self? I do, I, absolutely. And I've been asked that question many times. And I, I, I think that I was lucky because, I mean, it's, I've been lucky in many ways, but, but one of them was that I was incredibly well taught at school um, in terms of literature and... And, and, you know, I, I've worked on or in text for my whole life. You know, as a kid, I was constantly doing theatre and, and little films and, and anything we could do. You know, every, every day of the week, there was something happening for me. So it's never been like a thing that I've had to kind of go out and find. It's always been happening. So I've always been creating stuff. And if I wasn't producing something or writing something, I was directing it or I was appearing in it. And so they've all, they all joined together with me. But then when I got into the industry, you know, the first work I was doing where people were paying me decent money was story editing. So I very quickly had to use those skills of analysis and interpretation that I've been taught as a kid, you know, to look, looking at Shakespeare or Harold Pinter or whatever it was. And then suddenly I was having to translate that into, um, you know, screenplay analysis. And of course, what I realized was they weren't really very different, the two activities, that when you're trying to critique a work, a great piece of theater get inside it and tear it apart and kind of and see what it's really about and uh, you know that's kind of what you're doing when you're story editing a screenplay so I brought that intensity and that passion to that work and I think that then when I went into directing my own work um, I learned I think working title also did teach me this by seeing other people do that that the screenplay is everything until you start shooting and then it's not everything and then shooting is everything and I think you realize that they're very different specific phases of the creative you know the creative life of the project and I'm not precious you know I don't but when you see actors doing their thing and I've been lucky enough to work with some incredible actors on Narcopolis and when you get two really amazing actors coming in and they're and they're saying your lines and then they'll come to you and they'll say look this bit here we're we're not sure about this we're not sure about that you know can we try this can we? and suddenly it comes alive and, and I, I'm not precious about that for me I'm excited when people throw away my dialogue I'm excited when people want to kind of you know beat the scene up and say well maybe we should try it this way you know I think that the best kind of collaborations come out that way and then you know, then you get options and then you then you're in the edit and you're looking at the work again and, and it's another it's another process of of throwing out assumption and throwing out what you think you knew and discovering something fresh so i i, I really get invigorated by that i this if the screenplay was a perfect thing it would be published as a you know like books are published you know the screenplay is your roadmap but then you go and go into production and, and everything's up for grabs in terms of writing and directing, you came from an acting background. Um, a lot of actors turn directors. It, it's kind of, you know, 
you you know the process as an actor. Um, what do you think brings helps you bring that in both in terms of as a writer and as a, also as a director? The fact that you have acted before, you know that process. Yeah, that's another good question. I think that I've I've been very lucky because um, acting. Uh, well, one thing I've actually realised, I've learned really just through application, is that I think acting and screenwriting are incredibly close together as as kind of creative um, pursuits because there's something about when you sit down and you type, you know, interior spaceship day or whatever it is, you know, you're putting yourself into the feet, the shoes of somebody who then has to walk through that scene as a creative, as an actor. So when you're giving them the information, the reader, the information on the page, you're really giving them exactly the information that they need and, 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 and not the information that they don't need. And that's exactly what actors need. Actors need specific, clear guidelines through which to navigate they also don't need things to be spelt out to them in a ridiculously obvious way. They need subtext. They need all kinds of elements, which really are what make up the nuts and bolts of screenwriting. So I think that has been a very useful kind of way of you know looking at it. So it's not just me standing up in my office while I'm writing and, and saying the dialogue out loud, which I do, but it's also about literally thinking, right, if I am you know a another actor standing on set right now, what information do I need? What is what you know to, to progress from 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 A to B? So I think that's been very helpful. Um, and as a director, I think it's given me an enormous respect and regard for actors. I, I absolutely love actors. I love working with them. I think they are the the most extraordinary tool you have as a filmmaker. You know, although it's a visual medium, and although you're working with camera and technicians, all of which I find incredibly exciting and, and I love the extraordinary kind of experience you have of working with a really really good actor um is unbelievable you know it, it, it opens whole new doors of possibility for you that <clears throat> however you know enlightened you are you're not going to really be able to predict them all as um you know when you're writing the script and the other thing i say is that it's given me a respect for them because i think that what a lot of actors you know when, when we go and see films as an audience and the audience can you know we're very dismissive if we don't like a movie, we'll often say, oh, you know, I don't like it. Who's in it? You know, who's in this film? Who's in that film? And these people that, you know, to the outsider, maybe they get paid a lot of money and, and they, you know, have a very sort of precious lifestyle. I think that you need to also be aware that, you know, they are on the front line of what we do. So if I'm not getting it right, if I'm failing in some way as a director or I'm missing the mark, and, not, you know, my form is not as good as it should be, the people who will suffer the most are the actors because they're the ones having to kind of wrestle this thing into a three-dimensional form and, and to make it truthful and believable. And if you're not serving them, then they're going to be struggling around for, you know, for options. And I think you can see that. I think films that sometimes do fall down, and, it's, you know, and we shot scenes in this movie which we had to reshoot, and, and I hold myself responsible for that because there were moments where you're looking at, a, you know, at something and it's just not working, and it's not the actor's fault, but the first, the default setting even as a director that you have is, well, it must be the actors, you know, because how could it be the script? Because I'm a genius, you know, and then of course you realize that's just not true. So I think it's really given me, to answer your question, perhaps more succinctly, a really kind of deep appreciation of the fluidity of the process, how that they're, all these elements are interdependent. And I think you have to have respect and love for actors in order to work with actors. Um, and likewise, one hopes that they have respect and love for a director, you know, as long as they haven't had too many bad experiences. Well, awesome. Um, well, let's uh, kind of turn the conversation to Narcopolis specifically. Tell me a little bit about, about, you know, where the idea came from, how you came up with it, and the process of turning it into a film. 
the, the, the actual idea for the film in its purest sense came from a, a, a visual moment in my life. I, I was, um, you know, like we all do, I had a storage locker and I, you know, where we, you store all that stuff that you think you need and then you never look at, you know. Um, anyway, I was down there sorting through some stuff and it was three stories down in this very dank, rather unpleasant building. And I suddenly sort of thought to myself, God, what, what would happen if you found a body in one of these lockers. It must be the most terrifying. I'm sure it happens. It'd be terrifying. And that kind of gave me an image in a sense. And, and, and incredibly, actually, we ended up shooting the storage locker sequences of the film in the very same facility that gave me this idea, and it's kind of strange. But um, So I was there, and, and that was just simply an image and an idea. But then what spun out of that very quickly was you know, it, it connected with something that I'd been wrestling with for a long time. I'd wanted to tackle time travel. I was very, very keen on creating a, a kind of larger canvas story within the, the confines of a kind of futuristic London because it's not something that's often attempted um, in this part of the world. Within the British film industry, you know, we, we tend to look to American films to do um, futuristic narratives and the only sort of one that I can think of that really stands out is Children of Men, which I remember seeing, mm -hmm. that really kind of caught my eye and I thought, wow, that's, you know, look what they did there. That is, it's possible to, to, to look at this landscape in a very different way. So that started to sort of blend together and then I think once I'd found this character, that image of the body in the locker became for me a kind of murder mystery um, as opposed to something that was just, you know, an image. It became a mystery. The time travel then could come into play there because it was what better way to exploit that than the idea that this body is in the locker but there's absolutely no physical evidence of it arriving. So the locker, you know, the security cameras, they haven't detected anyone coming in or out. There's no, you know what I mean? All those kind of mysteries. And, and you know, if, if something has traveled through time to arrive somewhere, that's probably the explanation. But of course, that's what the movie is about, is how our character... Frank Reeves finds his way to that realization. Well, and that kind of leads me into my next question in terms of, of influences. I, I saw a little bit of, of Life on Mars, kind of, a little bit of uh, the TV show Utopia, um, a little bit of Blade Runner. Tell me a little bit about what influenced you in terms of your style, in terms of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, certainly on a, on a pure visual level, I think the scale and kind of beauty of Ridley Scott's filmmaking sort of speaks for itself and I think if you're interested in making films of a certain scale I think it'd be very hard to ignore his work I think he's a visual genius and of a generation I, I first saw Blade Runner on a pan and scan VHS tape that my brother owned you know back in the 1980s and it was kind of this, this sacred thing and you know, it, it just opened my eyes to something. that I, I would always been a fan of science fiction. As a kid, I you know, comic books, short stories, whatever I could get my hands on, I was kind of a voracious um, consumer of this stuff. Star Wars, you know, all those kind of things came along and really turned my head. But there was something about the melancholy beauty of Blade Runner that I think it did definitely stay with me as a kind of, as a sort of poetic influence. But, you know, I was also very keen not to just then go and try and ape. I mean, you know, how on earth could I try to replicate a film for a budget of, you know, just under a million dollars of a film that even, you know, 20, 30 years ago cost $30 million. You know what I mean? I mean, it'd be kind of insane to try that. So it wasn't really about replicating Blade Runner so much as then kind of digging deeper into the influences. Philip K. Dick, very important to me as a writer and as a person, actually. And I found his story, the struggles, sort of struggles he had to 
with reality and and with the status quo. You know, he was a, in some ways quite a subversive writer and and a, and a very very tortured man. And I found his story very moving. But also, I love the idea of these kind of broken people trying to do the right thing. You know, despite the odds being stacked against them. And I think that's ultimately where the character came from. And then, you know, I've also alongside the sci-fi been forever a huge sort of devotee of what I would call you know elevated murder mystery crime thriller kind of stories you know the, the film noir or the zodiacs and sevens of this world David Fincher is another huge influence on my work um, I find him another kind of staggeringly gifted visual stylist who one can only sort of marvel at just how accomplished he is and I think you know what he and Ridley Scott both do absolutely incredibly is they create these complete worlds these 360 degree environments that that everything feels like it's part organic to that world nothing just feels like they picked up a camera and pointed it somewhere and hope for the best every single detail is is, is specific and the play of light the, the way the camera frames faces all that kind of stuff is just I find breathtakingly beautiful and, and I, I absorbed all of it I think growing up so that mattered to me an enormous amount when going into Narcopolis. You know, we had a very small amount of money to make the film with, but I was very lucky that my cinematographer, Christopher Moon, completely shared that vision with me. Both of us agreed there was just no excuse to point the camera at something and kind of go, well, that'll do. We've only got this much time, this much money. You know, we refused to turn over until we were absolutely sure that we could create something that really did feel like it had that kind of muscularity and beauty to it. Well, and that also kind of leads me to the next question in terms of uh, genre. This, uh, what draws you to the genre of science fiction? What make, what attracts you to it? One of the things I find really exciting about it is, to, you know, really what I've said about worlds. It gives you an opportunity to create a world from the ground up. You know, I, the, the, creating Narcopolis was just so much fun because all the little details that are in there, the, the terminology, you know, the vernacular, the devices, the, the technology, the shift in, you know, in our reality, you know, as I said, using limited resources. So I wasn't going to try and reinvent everything. You know, it wasn't going to, we weren't going to be like making costumes and you know, we had to use what was kind of readily available to us and adapt it. But in doing that, I found I was being really truthful to the premise of the film itself, which is this slightly economically degraded universe where, you know, stuff is no longer, you know, the Apple store would probably not exist in my world anymore. What happens is everyone's buying and reselling and adapting and the old machinery, you know, we realized that by using older vehicles that we created a more futuristic field than if we tried to convert you know, present day vehicles into something sci-fi, you know, so I found that really fascinating. So the world building is definitely one thing. I think the second thing that draws me to it is the philosophical angle, which is that, you know, by creating a what if, so I suppose most science fiction really focuses on a what if, what if man created artificial intelligence to the, to the level that you might see it in an ex machina, or what if the police were judged during execution, or they are in dread, you know, these big what ifs, I think, give you an opportunity not just to tell a great story and to you know really entertain people which I think is paramount but also to actually start thinking about our place in the world and who we are as people and what it means to be human and I think that problem worrying that problem and you know and, and thinking about that philosophically is something that you can spend you know that's a life's work I don't think we'll ever get to the end of that and I think that science fiction gives us a shortcut to that kind of philosophical musing but it always, always, if it's done well, entertains. I think that's an amazing thing. You know, if you think of going back to Blade Runner, you think of Rutger Hauer at the end of Blade Runner, kind of musing on the things that he might have 
lost, that, that will be lost forever, the tears in the rain speech and everybody knows, you know, that's on the end of an, a really adrenaline pumping, nail biting kind of chase and fight sequence. Do you see what I mean? It's kind of, you're blending these two things, entertainment and intelligent questioning of the universe. I think that's an amazing, amazing thing to be able to do. What would uh, you say was the hardest part of the process, either of writing or directing or both? Well, yeah, how long have you got? Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, look, it's not, I'm not trying to broke a world peace. It's hard, but only on its own terms. But it is hard in as much as, you know, you're, you need to have 10 to 20% more energy and enthusiasm than anybody else in the room. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because if your enthusiasm or energy dips at any stage of the process, people will start to lose confidence in the enterprise. And I think that films are such a high-risk entity, you know, even at the level we're talking about, you know, a million dollars or so, people are investing that much money, you know, it's a huge amount of money in, in, in a project where, where essentially they all they hope is that it turns out okay they don't have really any assurances other than what you have told them maybe some short films and the other work that, you know, your track record obviously to date which counts for something so because my track record was perhaps less than some filmmakers out there making their first film it was a paramount importance for me to be able to really you know I, I had to work extra hard to be the most disciplined, enthusiastic, rigorously informed person. And then the, I would say the other thing, really, we had some really talented line producers working on this film, and I had a very, very supportive producing partner, a guy called Eldar Tuvi, who was brilliant. And he was, you know, he's a financial genius, and he understands how to put small businesses together and turn them into profitable entities and he was a brilliant producing partner to have but the physical day-to-day -day producing of this film which took nearly three years to complete ultimately fell to me and I think that was the hardest part ultimately because you're standing on a set you've got actors it's freezing cold you know camera equipment fails something goes wrong you know as inevitably happens on every film but what I was also juggling was the producerial responsibilities alongside the creative and I think there were moments for me personally when that really was very hard to accomplish because on every film set tensions sometimes rise sometimes actors you know lose they, they lose their focus they get unhappy or, or they might have a confusion about the screenplay whatever it was and you want to be there to support them but I was doing that simultaneously while I had other people telling me that something had gone wrong or that next week this, a location had fallen through or you know the usual nuts and bolts of filmmaking and I think because it was my first outing separating those things out was quite hard at times so I had to I had to work really hard to to keep my focus and to stay you know to stay as kind of energetic as I could but you know we got there and, and I was very ably supported it's exhilarating. You know, I can't say that I wouldn't do it all again because I would. There are certain things that we did on this film which I think are, you know, which are interesting from from a filmmaking point of view. One of the things that we did do, which might be interesting to you, to the people, to your listeners who are interested in natural the nuts and bolts of filmmaking, is that we worked. We were very keen not to use too many visual effects because we didn't have the budget with which to do that. And I think that one of the things that we did discover was that actually, without spending any money at all, you know, it becomes that once you start to realise what it is that you're shooting for, you do start to be able to re-imagine environments in a very simple way, particularly exteriors and that kind of stuff, and start being able to kind of create a, 
a different looking world to the one that you're in without actually spending a huge amount of money and one of the ways we did that was by having a very reduced film unit so we would shoot the main unit with the you know with the big actors who come and they'd have accommodation green room trait you know makeup catering all that kind of stuff and obviously you have production assistants big lights and that kind of stuff and then there were other elements that we realized that we could shoot almost guerrilla style where it would just be me the dop a camera some sound and a couple of actors and, and you know and we managed to create a kind of guerrilla unit that would go out and shoot actually quite a substantial portion of the film that didn't require as i said the bigger elements which is one of the ways in which we managed to make this film. So I would say to anyone thinking of doing this, you know, there's a conventional way of making a film, but there's also an unconventional way. And I think that as long as you're not breaking the law or endangering someone's life, don't take no for an answer. <laughs> because that's what we discovered. The pro, you know, For me, the, the big takeaway from making Narcopolis, as well as all the great individual experiences I had, was you know, everyone is going to look at you like you're insane when you start talking in the, the way we started talking about this film, because it was so ambitious for a first film, for the money we had. But by the, the end of the process, it felt like we could go on shooting forever because we'd worked out a way of doing this that was incredibly efficient, but at the same time managed to put all of the resources on the screen. And, and I'm incredibly proud of that. This technology in the hands of the wrong people, this changes everything. Narcopolis opened on October 2nd and is available on video on demand. For more information, visit the IFC Films website linked on this article. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Jerry Pitukin, available via the Free Music Archive. The podcast is recorded in partnership with Sci-Fi for Me Radio and released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial share-alike license. Links for more information on all this are available on AngieFSutton.com.